Dwight Schrute. Hello, trader. I think you have the wrong number, Michael. In working on this series about non-compete agreements and the FTC's proposed nationwide ban, I've been thinking a lot about The Office, and specifically about the Michael Scott Paper Company. I want you to listen to me, friend, and I want you to listen to me good. I am going to come at you, and I am going to come at you hard. I am going to steal all of your clients, and then I am going to kill them in front of you. Michael, I'm just getting hardcore. Finally. In the episodes, which I would argue comprise one of the greatest episode arcs in sitcom history, Michael Scott, fed up with corporate, decides to start his own competing paper company, right there in Scranton, right there in the same building as Dunder Mifflin. You have no idea how high I can fly. Because of his years of experience as a manager at the company, Michael knows the industry. He knows what Dunder Mifflin's clients are paying, and he knows how to win them away. Okay, who covers Ban's pet grooming? Oh, they're my client. No, they were your client. They just called, said they're switching over to Michael Scott Paper Company. In the last month, we have lost 10 major clients to Michael Scott. What are we supposed to do? They keep undercutting us all right. Non-compete agreements are common in Pennsylvania. Dunder Mifflin could have made Michael Scott sign one, but they clearly didn't. If they had, he wouldn't have been able to work in the paper industry, at least in Scranton, Pennsylvania, for some period of time. And spoiler alert, Dunder Mifflin wouldn't have had to buy out his company to stop the bleeding. This is one of the things companies worry about and why they make so many people sign non-compete agreements. The FTC estimates that 30 million Americans, nearly one in five workers, are subject to a non-compete. The agency says that by banning them, employees stand to make more money, either by switching to an employer who will pay them more or by using a competing offer as leverage to get them a raise. But what about the business owners? Today, on Uncommon Law, how would a ban affect companies? And why are so many business owners so adamant that they need non-competes, even when there are other legal tools available to them that promise to protect their companies without unnecessarily limiting employee mobility? Russell Beck is a Boston lawyer who handles trade secret litigation and non-compete and restrictive covenant litigation. So anything having to do with information flow between companies. And often that occurs when an employee moves from one company to another. It's really easy, Beck says, to focus on egregious examples of a non-compete, like the sorts of agreements President Biden highlighted during this year's State of the Union address. A cashier at a burger place can't walk across town and take the same job at another burger place and make a few bucks more. But not anymore. We're banning those agreements so companies have to compete for workers and pay them what they're worth. Here's the thing. I've talked to a lot of people for this season of Uncommon Law. Nobody. Not the lawyers, not the business owners, not the Chamber of Commerce. Nobody defends non-competes for these sorts of low-level workers. 
Recall the infamous Jimmy John's example we talked about in episode one of this series. After the break, sandwich shop workers in a serious pickle. A controversial employment agreement that keeps them trapped at Jimmy John's. How is this legal? And the person behind the counter says, okay, what kind of sandwich would you like? And you say, I'd like a, a, a roast beef sandwich. They say, what kind of bread do you want? You tell them the bread. You want lettuce and tomato on that? You say, no, I really prefer not to. That guy had a non-compete. That's not appropriate, right? What are you protecting with that? Nothing. That is not just to a layperson unreasonable, but to a lawyer who practices in this area, that's unreasonable. When companies worry that their employees will go across the street to a competitor, it isn't usually the frontline retail workers they're worried about. The ones who really scare them are not making sandwiches. They're the employees that know the ins and outs of the business, who could do real damage to the company if they take that information with them. One of the main reasons for non-competes, Beck says, is to protect trade secrets. So trade secrets is a legal term of art. It's a fancy word for confidential information. Coke's secret formula. Only two guys in the world know it. If something happened to one, the formula would be lost forever. Special processes, proprietary knowledge, top secret ingredients. Nobody does chicken like we do with a kernel secret blend of herbs and spices. It's finger licking good. That information can be protected by a non-compete. And that's really the lion's share of what we see. The second most protected business interest? The relationships with customers. So those salespeople who are developing relationships with the customers who are whining and dining their customers so that when they try to sell whatever the product or service is, the customer has a good association with it and they want it. A business might be worried that if their top salespeople leave, they might bring some of the company's biggest customers with them. This is like the salon example from episode two. A lot of my clients I brought to Simonson's. And the clients aren't going there for Simonson's, they're going there for the stylist. Or like the Michael Scott Paper Company. Oh, one more thing. I'm going to have you listen while I steal your biggest client. Oh, no, 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 no. Michael, Michael. Those are the two main reasons for non-compete agreements, Beck says, protecting trade secrets and protecting relationships with clients. Now, you may say, well, why do you need a non-compete to protect either of those interests, the information or the relationships? That was actually my next question. (laughs) Why a non-compete instead of a non-disclosure agreement or a non-solicitation clause. It feels like a non-compete goes further than is necessary to protect the business. Um, Restraining trade and limiting employee mobility and maybe even stifling innovation for, for no good reason, except that a business maybe just doesn't want competition. So that's absolutely the argument that people opposed to non-competes will make. And it certainly has some appeal. And in many cases, that's actually true. A non-disclosure agreement or a non-solicitation agreement or the combination of the two may suffice. But let me give some examples of where they don't suffice. I'm guessing most of the audience has at least heard of, if not used, WD-40. That name comes from Water Displacement 40. WD-40, best tool I have, great stuff. It's a lubricant. What do you have that sticks or squeaks? And in fact, they have a saying, you only need two things in the world, duct tape and WD-40. <laughs> duct tape for the things that 
should stick but don't, and WD-40 for the things that do stick but shouldn't. Pick up a can at your favorite store. So it's WD, Water Displacement 40, it's the 40th formulation. So there were 39 formulas that preceded the 40th. Now imagine you were one of the people that was working on Formula 39. And maybe you even got it to Formula 40, maybe you didn't, but you were involved, you know what Formula 39 is. And you go to a company that says, hey, you know what, I'd really like to make a lubricant uh, that will work the same way that WD-40 does. Well, if you know how they got to 39, and, and maybe you do, maybe you don't even know how they got to 40, but certainly knowing how they got to 39 puts you way ahead of the game. That's unfair. What's unfair? So using the knowledge about Formula 39 and how they got there, like basically shortcutting all of the research and development, the years of effort and, and money and, and time that went into developing those formulas that led to 40 ultimately, you walked out with 39. Imagine the benefit that that confers on a new employer. Now, if the new company wants you to create a lubricant, are you going to be able to ignore everything that you learn in the course of coming up with Formula 39? It's going to be really hard to do. Moving from the company directly to the competitor and going to do the same type that that work for the competitor puts your former employer's information at risk. A non-disclosure agreement would say, well, you can't use or disclose it. But how? How are you not going to use or disclose it? The FTC suggests that companies don't need non-competes because non-disclosure agreements and trade secret laws provide similar protection. But according to many business owners, that simply isn't true. Non-competes are unique. Non-competes develop because they provide a different kind of protection. This is Emily Glendenning from BAE Systems, who spoke at an FTC workshop on the proposed ban a few months ago. And she put the matter quite starkly. When we return, we'll learn how non-competes provide a different kind of protection and why some companies are so reluctant to give them up. Stick around. The difference between missed opportunity and actionable intelligence. For in-house attorneys who strive to provide superior counsel and strategic advice, Bloomberg Law offers an unmatched platform of analytics tools and business intelligence. All to help improve productivity, mitigate risk, and inform decision-making. For the comprehensive platform that helps you work smarter and faster, the difference is Bloomberg Law. At a recent FTC workshop on the proposed non-compete ban, Emily Glendenning posed a common scenario. Imagine, she said, you've shared your most confidential information with your employee, who then leaves to work for a competitor. How do you truly protect that information? You could have her sign a non-disclosure agreement or threaten trade secret litigation. But because you can't monitor her conduct anymore, you can't know what she's disclosing. Even if she wants to comply, she cannot excise your confidential information from her brain. She knows what avenues your competitor should follow and what blind alleys it should avoid. This isn't all just speculation. Employees leave for competitors all the time. And sometimes 
they don't just take the tacit knowledge of why WD-39 doesn't work. Sometimes there's a real risk that they'll take actual confidential information and trade secrets with them. So to minimize that risk, a lot of companies build non-competes into their employment agreements, like the EMC Corporation. We could not let any element of those business competitors take our business. And that's why we zealously and appropriately protected our intellectual property, our trade secrets, our confidential information. This is Paul Dacier, who spent nearly three decades as general counsel and later executive vice president of EMC Corporation. If that name sounds familiar, you might be thinking about its deal with Dell back in 2015. Reported earlier, Dell is in talks to buy data storage product company EMC. Dell's offer. Our lead and the biggest technology takeover ever. Dell agreeing to buy EMC for $67 billion to pull off the deal. Stick around. You are watching Go. But decades before that takeover, EMC was an up-and-coming computer and data storage company based in Massachusetts. Very up-and-coming. Through the 90s, we became one of the uh, key players in the development of the Internet. And our market capitalization at the height of the dot-com boom was about $220 billion. So a big company that competed with the giants of the computer industry. And sometimes, when EMC's employees left for a competitor, they flat-out took trade secrets with them, despite the existence of a non-disclosure agreement. When somebody walks across the street... They could, and sometimes do, violate those non-disclosure agreements, either by taking documents or files with them, or beyond their general skill and knowledge, take the specific knowledge they have, for example, about EMC, and what we're doing from a pricing, development, selling point of view, and disclose it to the new employer, such that then, if that happens, I won't know until it's too late. The damage is done. The damage is done. Did it happen at EMC? Can you point to any specific examples? Yes, we've had a myriad of examples through the 1990s and into the last decade before we sold out. Somebody downloads uh, thousands of documents sales plans, engineering plans, pricing plans, or programs, and either downloads them or sends them to the personal computer and then uh, walks out the door. There are some companies out there, I'd rather not use names, and they hired our people with impunity, and many of them took our documents. Even when employees don't take confidential information with them, their departure Dacier says, can hurt a company. What happens when you lose important people? Others notice. Did that happen? Yes. So if you let somebody go, others will go. You lose an executive vice president like that, that will send a message to the troops as to our continued viability. It doesn't mean that you go out of business overnight. It's just a question over time how much business you'll start to lose. Dacier's fear sounds kind of like what we talked about in our last episode. In Silicon Valley, throughout the latter half of the 20th century, lots of people left their companies 
to go to a competitor or to form new companies. What developed in Silicon Valley was a culture of being able to move. And because of California's prohibition on non-competes, their employers couldn't stop them. That's why they were able to go. Once Silicon Valley discovers that they can't stop people from changing jobs and don't really want to, when they begin to understand that you've basically created a huge externality, you get Silicon Valley. So some might argue that, so what if your employees can go somewhere else? Workforce mobility is good for the employee, and it might encourage companies to become better places to work so that their talent won't want to leave. Plus, with all those people seeding new companies with knowledge and experience, we might invigorate the economy and create a ton of cool new stuff. Win, win, win. Right? It does have superficial appeal to point to Silicon Valley. Again, Russell Beck, who is about to pour some cold water on our romantic fantasies of Silicon Valley as a collaborative capitalist utopia. It turns out there is a major downside to letting employees go wherever they want, whenever they want. That downside is called trade secret litigation. And per capita, California has the most trade secret litigation of anybody. California has more litigation over trade secrets than anywhere else. Why is that? Well, a company needs to protect its information, and if it can't do it through non-competes, it's going to find other ways to do it. When employees run to competitors, even if they don't intend to take confidential information, remember, it's still there, inside their mind. Sometimes employees can't help but bring the formula for WD-39 with them. So the former employer says, okay, we need to protect ourselves because if this employee is working for the competitor at this point, doing the same job, they can't do that job without using our information. What are the tools available to protect ourselves? There's only one tool left at that point. It's trade secret law and the related uh, breach of contract that you'd have for a breach of a non-disclosure agreement. And trade secret litigation is considerably more involved and expensive than non-compete litigation. So with non-compete litigation, Generally, the courts are presented with a contract. They can read the contract. They can look at the job that the person had before. They can look at the job they have now. And they can say, your new job violates that contract. As litigation goes, that's not very expensive. There's not a ton of discovery needed. In contrast... With trade secret law, we need to get a lot more detail. What was your conduct before you left? What was your role exactly? What information did you have access to now that you've gone over to the next company? You know, we need to understand that much better. And that involves a lot of factual digging that a non-compete case doesn't require. And all of this discovery costs money. Costs a lot of money. For both sides? Yes. From the employee's standpoint, they're both trying to prove they didn't do anything and respond to the employer's request for information. In order to do that, they need to have every device that may have any information on it that belonged to the former employer forensically reviewed. That becomes very expensive. It's a deep dive into the individual's conduct as opposed to the individual's job. And that's not all. Those 30 million non-compete clauses that the FTC wants to cancel, the FTC's analysis doesn't take into account what Beck calls 
a flood of litigation that would ensue from canceling 30 million contracts overnight. So you can imagine if um, a company asked an employee to sign a non-compete, the company says, we'll hire you and we will pay you some amount of money. And in exchange, we want you to provide services and agree that you're not going to compete. So some amount of what the company is paying is allocated, at least in theory, as a legal theory, to that non-compete. Beck is alluding to a basic principle of contract law. In any agreement, there needs to be a mutual exchange of benefits, what lawyers call consideration. So in theory, if an employee promises to refrain from competition, the employer has to pay something for that. Sometimes it's just part of the salary, but it could be an extra stipend or stock options. So if the FTC says all of those non-competes are now invalid, well, what's what happens with all that money that was spent, all that stock that was given to the employee? Does the employee get to keep it or do they have to give it back? And that, I think, is going to engender a lot of litigation. It's not just big corporations that rely on non-compete clauses to protect their business. Small business owners can depend on them as well. My name is Sarita Mitchell, and I own Empower Logistics. It's a freight brokerage that offers fast and reliable freight to shippers. Basically, it's a trucking company. Mitchell helps businesses ship their products around the country. Farmers needing to ship rice or fruits, retail, you know, clothing, electronics, mechanical automotive parts. As a little girl, Mitchell did not grow up hoping to get into the trucking business. I had never, in my wildest dreams, never thought about it. <laughs> had no idea, would never imagine trucking at all. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, trucking has to be a big macho man that's sitting behind a truck with a hat on. <laughs> had no idea. But she knew someone in the business, and she saw that trucking isn't just about sitting behind the driver's seat. If you own the company, you can even work from home. It's recession-resistant. The opportunities are great. The money that you can earn is really unlimited. And Mitchell learned a lot about the industry from an unexpected source. There's a lot of influencers on YouTube who've already been successful that can really show us the ropes on the freight brokerage side. I think that's... Wait, wait. Freight brokerage influencers? <laughs> I mean, I think influencer, I think some lady on TikTok showing me her makeup. I don't think <laughs> freight brokerage influencer. Oh, well, you know what? There are a lot of personalities that are out there. They share their secrets. Today, people like Dennis Brown. I'm going to share with you how to become a freight broker in seven simple steps. Brendan Scott. Right now, the question that I have for you is, how do you find shippers? The customers that are going to be the lifeline of your business, how do you find those customers? Where do you look for those customers? These videos have hundreds of thousands of views. There's one video called How to Make a Million Dollars a Year from Home as Freight Broker. Hi, this is Sergey Drachev, and I've been uh, trucking long haul since uh, 2005. That one's got over half a million views. It's just this guy sitting in his big rig talking to the camera about the best way to make money in trucking. Uh, it all boils down to 
boils down to money, right? And the more I'm trucking, the more I get convinced that the best money is not made behind the wheel of a truck in this industry, but behind a, a desk with a phone and a computer and an internet connection. It's not easy. I'm not going to say it's easy because it's work. But it is, there are opportunities out there for people if you're hungry and you really want it. There's a way to do it. I found Mitchell from a comment she filed on the FTC's website. She was asking the agency to reconsider its proposed ban. She wrote that they didn't anticipate the effect on small businesses. And Mitchell worries that if non-competes are banned, her customers who she works hard to develop relationships with, might be tempted to just work directly with the drivers. I asked Mitchell if she could read her comment for us. On a daily basis, our drivers, whether company driver or owner-operator, are the face our customer greets and interacts with, which forges a sense of instant trust as they appear as a hero who saves the day to get deliveries to a destination on time. Some customers may be inclined to accept offers to undercut our freight shipping fees to improve their profit margins, despite our leadership team's efforts to nurture customer satisfaction on an ongoing basis. Now, the FTC is not banning non-solicitation clauses. Mitchell could still have her employees sign those, and she would technically be protected. But remember how Russell Beck told us There are some scenarios where, in his opinion, non-solicit clauses aren't good enough. This is the kind of situation he had in mind, where a company owner works hard to build a customer base, and then, because of the personal relationship that develops between the customer and, in this case, the driver, the customer might just decide to go with the driver if they strike out on their own. And it's not necessarily a bad thing for someone to go out and and get business. It's just that if they intentionally work around the the relationship that introduced them to that customer, that's the issue. Sometimes the temptation is to just move on without the owner-operator or the broker and try to approach that customer directly. Has that specific situation happened to you in this business? Yes, it has. It has. And even if Mitchell did find out and sued her former employee for breaching a non-solicitation agreement, even if she won that case, her business could still be harmed. She'd have lost the client, so she's lost that business, and she's lost any goodwill or referrals coming her way. How do you calculate those damages? So Mitchell uses a non-compete. She says the stronger language of a non-compete feels like it would be more effective in dissuading employees from going after her customers. You know, not everyone has a sense of ethics. Things that happen in this industry, you know, will blow your mind. From poaching customers to stealing fuel, reselling parts to trucks. I mean, it's so many different things. As I said, this is a second chance industry. You have career changers, you have felons, you have people from all walks of life that are coming into this industry. And, you know, if they can, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, some people will take it. Not all, but some will.
Next time, on the conclusion of our five-part series on non-competes, we'll hear from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has already indicated it will sue to block enforcement of any FTC non-compete ban. They were smart because the issue of non-competes does resonate. The real question for the chamber is, does the FTC have the legal authority to write this rule? Because if they can write this rule, they have other rules they want to write. If Lena Khan's FTC bans non-competes, what's next? There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. We'll revisit the question we posed in episode one. Does the agency even have the power to pass this regulation? That's next time on Uncommon Law. Uncommon Law was written and produced by me, Matthew Schwartz. I also did the mixing and sound design for this episode. Uncommon Law was edited by Josh Block, who is the executive producer for videos and podcasts here at Bloomberg Industry Group. I'd like to thank Andrew Satter for his editing help on this episode. And an additional thank you to Tom Taylor, Cheska Antonelli, and Joel Meyer. Also, wonderful news for us here at Bloomberg Law, our last season on Affirmative Action won the American Bar Association's Silver Gavel Award for Media and the Arts. So especially with Affirmative Action back in the news, given the Supreme Court case, you're going to want to listen to that season if you haven't already. If you like Uncommon Law, tell a friend and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Join us next time for the season finale of Uncommon Law. Michael, I want you to stop pestering my salesman, and I want you to leave Dunder Mifflin alone. Do you understand? I understand nothing. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.